It's never just one thing. When we get sick, it's almost always a combination of things that go wrong. Doctors tend to focus on the most obvious potential cause, but there may be other factors at work, especially environmental exposures that many physicians are not aware of. Two of those factors, radiofrequency radiation and toxic mold, are rampant in our world, and they're both getting worse. But few doctors are understanding the synergistic impact of these exposures. This is the state of medical practice in the U.S. today. This may partly explain why so many people with chronic illness don't get better. And this is Green Street. again and welcome to Green Street. Patty and Doug Wood and our amazing network of medical professionals, researchers, engineers, authors, reporters, and others all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is really going on in the world around you and how you and your family can live a better, safer life in this increasingly toxic world. We are at an inflection point today on any number of incredibly important issues. The right of everyone to vote, the right of women to their own reproductive choices, the right of people to live without constant fear of gun violence, the right of people to choose who they love, the right of all of us to live in a country free of authoritarian rule, and the right to be free from man-made toxins that are taking a toll on our collective health and well-being, as well as the right to a medical community that's fully informed about environmental health and can help people who are suffering as a result of environmental exposures. Today on Green Street, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Sharon Goldberg, a practicing physician specializing in integrative internal medicine and clinical electromagnetics. We'll talk with Dr. Goldberg about how she became involved in environmental medicine, her discovery of the impacts of RF radiation, and among other things, her thoughts about how mold can linger in our bodies for years, causing all kinds of trouble. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street. But first, or fust, as my six-year-old granddaughter Charlotte says, here's Patty with the headlines from the Green Street News Department. What do you got for us today? First article from The Guardian, which is a British publication, by the way, written by George Monbiot, and the title is Microplastics in Sewage, a Toxic Combination that is Poisoning Our Land. What happens when our sewage system works as intended? What happens when the filth is filtered out and the water flowing out of sewage treatment plants is no longer hazardous to life? When the system works as it is meant to, it is likely to be just as harmful as it is when bypassed by unscrupulous water companies. It's an astonishing and shocking story, but it has hardly been touched by the media. We are often told that the microplastics entering the sewage system, which comes from tire crumbs washing off the roads, the synthetic clothes we wear, and the many other sources, are a wicked problem, almost impossible to solve. But a modern, well-run sewage treatment works, removes 99% of these fibers from wastewater. So far, so good. But having screened them out of the water supply, the treatment companies then release them back into the wild. Of the sewage sludge screened out by treatment works, 87% is sent to farms. The microplastics so carefully removed from wastewater by the treatment process are then spread across the land in the sewage sludge the water companies sell to farmers as fertilizer. 
The testing of sewage sludge has not been updated since 1989, so there's no checking for plastic particles or most other synthetic chemicals. A study commissioned but then kept secret by the government found that the sewage sludge being spread on our farmland contained a remarkable cocktail of dangerous substances, including PFAS, benzopyrene, dioxins, furans, PCBs, and PAHs, all of which are persistent and potentially cumulative. It is almost unbelievable that the deliberate contamination of agricultural soils with persistent and cumulative pollutants is both widespread and legal. This practice, as well as the spreading of contaminated sewage sludge, urgently needs to be stopped before large tracts of farmland become unusable and the damage to ecosystems from soil to sea irreversible. It could turn out to be one of the most deadly issues of all, and hardly anyone knows about it. Well, it sounds like they're, begin- it. they're beginning to know about it. Yeah. You know? No, this was an article about the situation in the UK. Yeah. This is exactly the same situation here in the US. There's two types of fertilizer that are adding to this problem. Two types of fertilizer. One is actually sewage sludge that is being used as fertilizer, mm-hmm. which contains anything that goes down the drain that might contain you know, plastics, lots of things, okay? okay? And then you have the other thing, which is actually intentionally adding plastics two fertilizer products to encapsulate the fertilizer so that it is a quote-unquote slow-release fertilizer. Mm-hmm. But as that plastic breaks down and releases the fertilizer, it becomes microplastics in the soil. So oh what's, what's the safest fertilizer? I mean, we're talking or, about, you know, cow manure. Yeah. Or a compost in your backyard. Yeah, but you're not making money off cow manure. Or not, compost. Not yet. Maybe you know, they'll figure out a way. I don't know. Pay those cows. Okay. Okay. What else you got? Okay. This is an article written by Tilde Herrera, and it is published in Civil Eats, and the title is What the Insect Crisis Means for Food, Farming, and Humanity. Many of the world's food crops depend on pollinators. There would be no chocolate without the tiny midges that pollinate the cacao tree, and strawberries would look shrunken and misshapen if they relied on the wind rather than the insects for pollination. But human activity has pushed many of these pollinator armies to the brink of extinction, according to Oliver Millman, an environmental reporter for The Guardian and author of The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. And here's the interview with Oliver Millman. Insects are a foundation for our terrestrial ecosystems. They're food for many of the animals that we cherish and admire, and they help pollinate around a third of the food we eat, Millman says. But culturally, we don't value them. And yet, he adds, we need them far more than they need us. We have some pretty frightening glimpses of what's happening in various parts of the world, but we still don't know the full picture. We don't even know how many species of insects are out there. There are one million named species, but there could be five, 10, or 30 million species. It's hard to know the scale, but there are some pretty ominous signs out there that something's horribly amiss. We've seen huge declines. In North America, one in four bumblebee species is in decline or threatened with extinction. There's a patch of protected forest in New Hampshire where beetle abundance has fallen 80% since the 1970s. In parts of the world, insects are in free fall. I remember, you know, going on family trips and after a couple of hours, you know, the front of the car was completely covered with bugs. That never happens anymore. Right. It's, it's so funny. I mean, it, it was absolute that you went to the gas station and the guy who's pumping your gas, because we didn't have self, you know, right. self pumps at right. that time when we were kids, 
they were always like scraping the bugs off the sure. windshield with yeah. their, you know, with their little squeegees. Part of the service. Part of the service was to take the bugs off the windshield. That just doesn't happen anymore. Okay. What else you got? Okay, I have one more from Peter Dykstra, one of my favorite writers. Um, and this was published in Environmental Health News, and it's called Algae Takes Over. And his, his subtitle is How the Magic Went Away from My Family's Summer Escape. Uh-oh. There's a little pond on Cape Cod that's been a treasured place for three generations of my family. Bellowing bullfrogs provided the soundtrack to tadpole catching, and the first experiences with fishing and boating left indelible memories. And here's how that magic went away. Since 2012, the little pond has periodically closed due cyanobacteria blooms. Also known as blue-green algae, cyanobacteria can cause digestive or respiratory problems in people or pets, and at its worst, it can also kill. Mall's Pond shares many of the same risks with hundreds of other kettle ponds on the Cape. Individual septic systems surround these ponds. Homes built on the porous sandy soil were equipped with septic systems that tend to fail within 25 to 50 years. And here's the cherry on the toxic Sunday. Warmer summers make the algae outbreaks more certain. Last year, the pond held out till late August before the town of Eastham's Health Department closed it to swimming, fishing, and boating. But a beautiful, unforgettable place it is, or was. What a shame. It, you know. it, it's happening everywhere. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. One of the things most of us know about medicine is that it only takes a little bit of something to cause big trouble. A tiny little germ we can't even see can cause life-threatening illness. A few drops of a toxic chemical in a giant body of water can cause death to someone who drinks the water. A little moisture in our homes can cause toxic mold to invade our living spaces. And a tiny bit of radiation from our cell phones or tablets or baby monitors can cause all manner of physical problems. Today on Green Street, we are super excited to have as our guest Dr. Sharon Goldberg, an integrative and functional medicine physician who specializes in helping to identify reversible causes of disease. Dr. Goldberg spent over a decade working in acute care internal medicine in New York City and Miami. During that period, she helped train hundreds of medical students and residents as a hospital medicine physician. She's an expert in clinical electromagnetics and the diagnosis and treatment of EMF-associated illness, including electromagnetic sensitivity, or EMS. Patty and I caught up with Dr. Goldberg last week, and we started our conversation by asking her how she became involved in this field of medicine. Here's our interview with Dr. Sharon Goldberg. I worked in academic internal medicine for almost 15 years as a hospitalist at the time when this field was kind of just starting. And part of the, the job was that they would give me a free cell phone. And it was time for me to upgrade the phone. And I wanted an iPhone. I had had a BlackBerry at the time. And, and the residents were laughing at me when we went around because I, I couldn't use their apps, the medical apps. So, so my administrator got me a new iPhone. And I brought it home and I had a conference call that I had to do. It was, it was about a 30 minute conference call that I did on speaker from this new phone, which I loved by the way. And by the end of the call, my, um, my finger felt like it was on fire. <laughs> like I literally had a finger, like a, you know, like a diabetics neuropathic toe and it didn't go away for four or five days. So that night I immediately 
I started researching cell phone radiation because I was like, what just this, I can't believe this, this, what happened to my finger? So, so that was when I, I started to learn about the effects of non-ionizing radiation and that actually we had been told that it's so safe, yada, yada. And it wasn't true at all. And a lot of these chronic medical issues that we were seeing in the hospital and that, that I was actually teaching residents about when we rounded that there were actually connections to microwave radiation, which was a big shock for me. So that was what got me into it initially. And my finger was fine after five days. Uh, <laughs> but, but I never really, since that experience, I've always had the electromagnetic environment and, and its effect on health sort of somewhere in my consciousness. Mm -hmm. It just never, it never got out. So that was, yeah, that was how I got interested in that. And then I bought a couple of meters. I started measuring things. And then eventually I, I did the, the electromagnetic radiation specialist coursework with the Building Biology Institute, which was fantastic. So then I got, you know, I got professional meters and started using those and, and learned from, you know, these wonderful teachers and mentors. And uh, that, was, that was how it started. And so wow. then you switched your path. Well, I was already, so I was already on an kind of an integrative path. And at that point I was starting to work part-time at the university of Miami. That, that was who gave me the phone. And it started a part-time practice in Bay Harbor islands, a part-time integrative practice. And I had been very interested in integrative medicine for many years and was part of the integrative medicine research team at the university there. So I was, so I was like, my head was there thinking about root causes of illness and and that happened because when I finished medical school in the late 90s and when I started working in internal medicine the internal medicine wards were it was it was geriatrics we we had very few young people admitted to internal medicine wards the few people that we had, you know, it was very clear why they were there. Like we had a lot of AIDS patients. We had, if someone had kidney failure and they were on dialysis at a young age, lupus and things like that there, but we didn't have people with just who were just sick by like they were, mm. they had multiple diagnoses and, and they were young and just for no reason. And so, and that's, that's how it is now. And so what was happening is that as the years went by, you had younger and younger people who just were getting sicker and sicker at a young age. And by sicker, I mean typical sort of cardiometabolic types of problems like diabetes, like uh, stroke or, or heart attacks, things like that. And we were just seeing at younger, younger ages, they were, they were coming in and on more and more medications. And this was another thing that just always sort of bothered me because, because genes don't change in, you know, over a period of 10 years, but the environment does. So I was always, you know, thinking, okay, well, what's going on? Why are people getting sicker and sicker at a younger age? And it's not like I didn't have the answer, but I was interested in, in environmental factors, you know, environment toxins and, and other, you know, just other environmental factors. Why, why would this be happening? And I was fortunate enough that at the University of Miami, my, my first, I think it was my first week on the job in 2011, the Institute for Functional Medicine was offering a pilot program to train a medical school faculty in functional medicine, which is a type of integrative medicine. And so I was able to enroll in this class and, and along with, with uh, a group, I don't know how many, maybe we were 30 people and there were some medical students too, we got this incredible training in functional medicine over a, over a period of a few years 
And so functional medicine teaches you a lot about root causes of disease and mechanisms of disease. So thinking about, you know, if someone is diabetic, what are the underlying mechanisms that could lead them to be diabetic? So that was a wonderful thing that happened to help, uh, you know, to get that functional medicine education at that time when every year it seemed like the population, our admissions, they were just getting sicker and sicker. Mm. The people, you know, admitted to the hospital wards. So let's go back to your your tingling finger. After you had that experience, did you begin to notice or see in your patients things that you thought might be related to exposure to RF radiation? No, <laughs> no, it didn't happen that quickly. Okay, it was it was more when I bought my first meter. After I did the research, after the finger incident, that was when I had the the realization that oh wow, like so. I like many people, I think I was sure I'd heard about smart meters, but I didn't really, I guess I, I thought, well, there's no way there could be a smart meter on my house because no one ever asked me. So I had that meter and I was measuring around my house in Florida. And I realized that, yes, we indeed did have a smart meter. And yes, it was very close to uh, my daughter's bedroom on the other side of the wall. And it was pulsing, you know, it was pulsing most of the house. And so I learned that that was a shock. And then just start, when you start to measure the things in your own home, it really is eye opening. But mm-hmm. I didn't start thinking about it in the context, like really of, of patients until I had my own practice and I was doing you know, integrative and functional medicine and also doing EMF assessments for people who were interested in that. It wasn't something that I offered to most patients, but some people with certain conditions they were interested in it and it gave me the opportunity to see their symptom scores before and after the home got remediated. So their levels of electromagnetic Mm. fields in the home were lowered and their awareness was like significantly increased as far as what they needed to do to lower their exposure. So at that point, I was able to see that EMFs really do affect everyone. And the only way that you you can have an understanding of that is when that person is given an opportunity to lower their exposure. And it particularly if they can lower their exposure at night while they sleep in their bedroom, that, that makes a huge difference. And so I saw like the things that I saw once I started doing this and also worked with a building biologist who did this for my patients, the things that uh, I saw were just mind blowing because let's say, uh, one person would be the patient. And so that's the person that I would be seeing. So I would get the response from that patient and, oh, wow, their blood pressure got better or something like that. But then they say, oh, and by the way, um, you know, I have a child who is autistic and, um, you know, they are doing so much better or they're speaking or I think this just, they're so, I've heard so many stories. I mean, I could mm-hmm. just go on and on, but one of the most common things that, that I would see and that building biologists see this a lot is that sort of neuropsychiatric issues in children and EMF exposure, it's a very big deal. And when you lower the exposure in the home, and I think this was a time where there was less, why I think less radiation in schools, there were fewer kids having phones and things. So you were able to lower the exposure more. But my sense is that a lot of the depression, anxiety, neuropsychiatric issues in children uh, neurodevelopmental issues in children, if EMF levels are lowered in the homes of these children, their symptoms improve incredibly. It's significantly. 
And every child is different and every situation is different. But this is uh, this is something that I would see very commonly that parents would notice a difference in their children when the EMF levels in the home were were lowered. They would fight less. And another common thing that they would mention is that that the children were happier, that they didn't have this. They were less angry. So interesting. So this is and this is just lowering EMF levels in the home. So you're just talking about routers and smart meters and that kind of thing, as opposed to a child just, you know, carrying around a cell phone in their pocket, which of course they should. Right. And again, this was a time when I don't think it wasn't as common as it is now. Like not every child was walking around with a microwave transmitter in their pocket like they do now. Um, So I think it's more it is more difficult now with I think with Wi-Fi in schools and devices and cell phones. But lowering the exposure at night and in the home can still make a big difference. You're listening to Green Street with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is Dr. Sharon Goldberg, an integrative and functional medicine physician who specializes in helping to identify reversible causes of disease. This is so interesting to me because, as you know, there are many scientists out there who reject the idea that there could possibly be any impacts of exposure to wireless radiation because uh, the FDA claims it's completely safe. But you're talking about actually measuring symptoms and looking at symptoms before and after you've had some patient education and you've mitigated the, the radiation at home and it's making a significant difference. Right. And I'm not saying that it's the same. You can't guarantee an, an outcome to anyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all humans are are genetically and biochemically unique and all of the environmental exposures are unique and what they inherit from their, their parents and their grandparents. The epigenetics will also determine an outcome. But, you know, what's for sure is that if a brain is already slightly compromised or a person is, let's say, slightly overloaded with toxins, when you add wireless radiation into the mix, which we know is causes oxidative stress, which is this foundational mechanism of pretty much all chronic disease. So you know that it's going to make the problems worse. So it's not, it's really not rocket science. So talk a little bit about the other symptoms that you would tend to see in someone who comes to see you, whose, whose house is full of RF radiation. What kind of things would we typically see among patients? Well, Everyone's house is usually full of RF radiation. So I have a general integrative medicine practice. So I see a lot, a lot of patients just come to me for integrative and functional medicine. They don't really know, they don't know about my EMF work. Then I have another uh, sort of subset of patients who, who come to me specifically because they've become reactive to electromagnetic fields. They have EHS, microwave syndrome, uh, whatever you want to call it. So I couldn't really answer that question about what happens to people when they're in a house full of RF, because, because our whole population, everyone, I don't, I mean, there are very few people left as of 2022 that don't have a house full of stuff that emits microwaves. I, I mean, there are a few holdouts, but for the most part, people, this is, this is the way people live. This is, we get our internet through Wi-Fi, not through a hardwired connection. People are now dependent on cell phones. They've, you know, they've kind of given up their landlines, many people. This is more the norm rather than the exception. So 
I couldn't give you an answer to that specific mm. question. But so it, we are one of those those holdouts. Very, we're the holdouts. We're a holdout. <laughs> we have hard hardwired everything, and I also teach. And you know, every once in a while, I have a student here, and the phone will ring, and they'll say, "What's that?" <laughs> I mean, they've never heard a phone ring. They've never heard a phone ring except for you know those little that they get from their cell phone. It is it is a a unique environment at this at this time. Well, You're yeah, I think right. people people have been convinced by advertising that there's no other way, right? You can't you can't live a normal life if you're not fully connected, connected all the time with everybody. Right. And as you know, there's no reason why you can't be fully you can be fully connected through an Ethernet cable. Of yeah. course, it's not as convenient as just, you know, picking up your computer or your laptop or your iPad or, you know, and just walking around with it, which is one, one of the problems in the school environment, because kids want to just be able to pick up their computers, go to their teacher's desk, do whatever, and not be sitting at a table where they are connected by, a you know, an Ethernet cord. But in the meantime, you know, there are serious conversations that need to be had about what it is doing to our children, not just, you know, wireless radiation, but all kinds of environmental toxins, you know, affect children more than they do adults, just because they're disproportionately exposed and disproportionately mm -hmm. affected because of their, you know, behaviors, their biology, blah, 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 developing systems. So this is a problem. This is a big, big problem. So Sharon Goldberg, how would you define EHS? My definition of EHS is these are the people who have figured out the connection between the exposure and their health problem. Mm -hmm. So they will develop certain clusters of symptoms. Like often they'll have neurologic symptoms. They'll have symptoms that appear usually immediately upon exposure. And then other symptoms that will happen later on after exposure. But I believe that it's a very, it is a, a tiny subset of the pathology that is caused by, by wireless radiation exposure. You know, what I've found from, you know, from seeing so many of these patients as a physician is that people who present with EHS most of them have occult biotoxin illness, meaning when you check them for mold toxins in the urine, and in my, in my patient population, I've got about 99% positive in this population, people with EHS, uh, when they are properly tested for, uh, for mold in their urine, they, they test positive. And it's been known for a while that exposure to toxic mold lowers your threshold to electromagnetic fields. And these people tend to become electrosensitive, not all of them, uh, because mold illness presents a lot like EHS. There are just so many different organ systems affected, and there are different toxins that can cause different presentations. But the bottom line is that if someone has EHS, they need to be tested for mold and they, they should find a mold literate physician in their area or someone they can work with who can do this. And the testing has to be done properly. Uh, there are a lot of labs out there, but it has to be done with, uh, with a glutathione challenge for a week. A week beforehand, they get this supplement glutathione, mm -hmm. which is major cellular antioxidant. Mm -hmm. And it helps a subset of these people who do not detoxify well and do not recycle glutathione it helps prevent a false negative urine test. Hmm. So That's when you find mold in someone with EHS and you treat it, their, their sensitivity, it, it really helps the sensitivity improve. 
Well, that is so interesting. I've I've heard sure that is. I've heard that a, a lot of people who suffer from um, from sensitivity to uh, to EHS also are chemically sensitive in general. That you know they have this uh, kind of pattern, and who knows what? I mean, I'm looking for what it is physiologically, but that's a really really interesting thing about the mold. Right, and mold also makes people chemically sensitive. So it's yeah. a lot of the same. And I don't have, I don't know the statistics on chemically sensitive people when you test them for mold, what is the percent positive rate? Because it, you know, I think with any sample size, it depends on, well, how are you recruiting these people? Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. so yeah. that will, yeah. that will uh, skew your outcome. So I can only speak about the statistics on my patients, but definitely mold is, you know, chemical sensitivity is very common when someone is mold toxic as well. And wow. another thing that I do want to mention that comes up a lot is that you'll hear from people with EHS who, you know, who move out and kind of live in the woods in areas where there's no EMF that they have this idea that they're never going to get over it. And people, so people will move away from the city and live out in the middle of nowhere and not get better. And this situation, these people really need to be tested for mold because many of them with mold toxicity, what happens is let's say you were in the home 10 years ago uh, that exposed you to toxic mold and you moved out. So people think, okay, well, I've moved out of that home, so it's not a problem. Well, that's not true because what can happen in a certain percentage of people is that that the, the, the toxic mold will actually take up residence in the uh, nasopharynx, in the sinuses, in the gut, and it becomes part of your flora. It just starts living in you and continues to produce the toxin. And another scenario that is very common is that people will move out of a home that had toxic mold in it without their knowing. And when they bring all of their stuff with them, oh, sofas, ah, mattresses, oh clothing, anything ah. with upholstery, they can't like, they can't be cleaned the proper way. They're bringing the toxin with them. Oh, man. So, so this can be a problem. A toxic mold exposure that happened decades ago can continue to affect someone for those reasons. And this is really a hidden epidemic that we don't, you know, I, I never learned about this in medical school and I'm so thankful that I was able to learn about it now, you know, as a practicing physician, but it is fascinating and it's, uh, it's a treatable cause of disease that I think all physicians should learn about. Yeah. So what is it? What is the remedy? What do you do if, if people have, you know, have these molds in their system? It's part of their bio, bio, uh, bio. Biome. Yeah. Well, that's micro, a great microbiome. question. Yeah. So yeah. What happens? Well, first yeah. you ha first you have to make sure that the home doesn't, you know, doesn't the home has to get inspected and, mm -hmm. and, right. uh, that you, know, you need to make sure that there is an ongoing exposure before you plan to treat someone. So let's say that they're living in a pristine home and they've gotten rid of all their stuff and they're no longer being exposed and they're just colonized. So right. what you would do is, and there are different, you know, there are different ways to approach this. Richie Shoemaker was the physician who really pioneered this field, I think in the early 2000s. And he had one approach but the approach that is seems to work the best nowadays in um, with hypersensitive patients, so with the EHS patients, is a bit of a different approach that's been that has been taught by a physician named Neil Nathan, who has mentored many physicians and authored books and and is a wonderful teacher. 
So what he recommends is that, well, obviously you're going to test the urine for the various mycotoxins, and then you, you design your treatment around the toxin or toxins with the highest elevation in the urine. So it starts out with binder therapy. So depending on the toxin, you will select the binders that best bind the toxin out of the body, right? So it could be bentonite clay. It could be charcoal, chlorella, Saccharomyces boulardii. Um, those are examples of a few of the binders. And then you'll use several of them, like combinations of different ones, depending on the, the toxins that were isolated. And the important thing is to start to start one at a time, very, very slowly, because people who are sensitive will often, when you start removing toxin, they can have very severe reactions to having more toxin pulled out of, and and the toxins are sequestered in the gallbladder. So what can happen is that the toxin will be bound up by the binder. And what happens is as the binder passes through the GI tract, some of the toxin will drop off. And so the more binder you use, the more toxin you pull out and pull through the GI tract. And if you're pulling out too much initially, you will overwhelm the person's system with toxin and then they get sick and they can have something, you know, like a Herxheimer reaction. Mm. So that's something that you want to avoid. So first phase is the binders. And so once you have them on binders, then you can start with um, therapy, nasal sprays, other, you know, antifungals that are not absorbed. So that's how it works. And the treatment is usually around a year. And then you continue a few months after the symptoms are gone and after the the test is negative to make sure that they don't relapse. Wow. I'm fascinated by your statement that said, I didn't learn this in medical school. I mean, no, no. And a lot of people will scoff at it and say, oh, no, that's not that's so not uh, not evidence based. But it couldn't be further from the truth. It is totally (laughs) evidence based. There's a lot of evidence. And um you know, and mold is a, is an, is an immune suppressant. And, you know, when physicians say it's not evidence-based, well, these mycotoxins, they're used as, uh, as weapons. The military has weaponized a few of them. So you can't say that they're not biologically active, Like we know that they are. Mm. Wow. Are the medical schools going to come around? I mean, it seems like you're identifying something that's causing significant health problems for a, a large part of our population. When is the medical establishment going to realize this? I don't know. And I didn't identify this, by the way. This has been known for a long sure. time. Yeah. It's been yeah. like, you know, it's been definitely since the early 2000s. I mean, probably earlier. And there have been lawsuits and things, but I don't know when the medical establishment will come around. This is a, it, this is also a very, it's a political issue, you know, because so many homes and offices and public buildings have been, once a building is water damaged, depending on the construction, it will often grow mold. Yeah. And our newer methods of construction are, uh, you know, things that contain cellulose and uh, they just, the, the, the toxic molds love to grow on, on these materials, drywall. And it just is, yeah. So we can surmise that it might be an economic decision. It's just going to be too expensive to try to remediate all the mold that's out there for people. Right. But it's really important information, I think, for just mm-hmm. for individuals. And, I, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing that your listeners would, be, you know, would be very interested in this. And, and mold toxicity is when I keep talking about mental health and psychiatric issues, but it's just so common nowadays 
that it's such it's an important issue. So mold toxicity is a very common cause of psychiatric issues of anxiety, depression, OCD, uh, behavioral changes in children, like sudden behavioral changes. So it's something that that people really should be aware of because it's treatable. It's treatable and it's common. And it's going to become more common. I hate to say that, but with um, with the warming of our planet and these really unprecedented weather events, especially flooding that's taking place all over the southern part of our country, we're we're looking at mold issues growing at this point. Exactly. And, and continuing mm. to grow. Mm. So it, it seems like, you know, this issue needs to be presented and discussed in detail uh, in in medical school, I know that medical schools don't touch environmental medicine. I mean, I know a lot of doctors who say, "Yeah, you know, I was sitting in the back of a uh, a lecture hall, you know, kind of snoozing while they were talking about cotinine, which is, you know, the byproduct of uh, of nicotine." But that's it. I mean, there was nothing else in their whole education that even touched on this. And you have so many kids with allergies, and so many kids who are sensitive and struggling today. I mean, just just look at the reality. You don't. You no longer have a single teacher with 25 children in a class. You have a teacher and then you have a couple of aides, assistant teachers, so that you can, they can, you know, deal with the children who have either difficulty learning with attention problems or just behavioral problems. And that's that, that is the normal, normal classroom today in America. And I'm, and I'm thinking all over the world. Yes. Okay. So on that positive note, <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Okay. Can I can I go back a little bit? I love this idea that you said that EMS is just the tip of the iceberg. It's really those associated illnesses. Can you think about any other associated illnesses? Or can you talk about that? Yes. So the only way to know how EMFs are are affecting a particular individual is for them to have a period of time where they are unexposed to EMFs. Mm -hmm. So they could do this by lowering their exposure in their home, potentially, or by if they live in a big city, they would likely need to go somewhere where they are not being blanketed in wireless radiation. Because if you live in a large urban area, as you can imagine, if you live in an apartment building, the you know newer construction buildings, wireless tends to go right through the walls and right through the floors. Again, it dep depends on the construction. Right. So living in a city means that, that your exposure to wireless radiation is going to be uh, significantly more intense than someone who lives in a rural area. With some exceptions, I mean, you could live in a rural area next to a massive cell tower or, uh, you know, or right. A, right. Right. A, radar, a radar dish or something. But I think you get the idea. Yeah. So no. So it really is an end of one with each person, um, and they need to kind of try it out and see and see what could improve. But because we know that microwave radiation causes oxidative stress, and oxidative stress is you know is this foundational mechanism in essentially all chronic diseases. That means that lowering EMF exposure could potentially help someone with almost anything, um, with uh, irregular heartbeats, with high blood pressure. That high blood pressure is a big one that um, I've, I've seen that improve a lot. 
multiple sclerosis when, you know, there have been some papers showing um, that what people have had demyelinating damage to their, their nervous system, mm-hmm. when they are re-exposed to microwave radiation, that their, their deficits, the, you know, the weak, the areas of weakness or, or tingling that they have from the MS can come back or get more severe. And then when, when the exposure is, you know, is um, removed, it goes away. So hmm. there are, so, and also diabetes, we have good, you know, good evidence going back to the seventies showing that microwave radiation exposure leads to, um, it raises blood sugar and other markers of, uh, of diabetes. So that doesn't mean that, you know, that cell phones cause diabetes, but even let's say because diabetes affects so many different people and because it's such an expensive problem to treat because of the complications that people develop like end-stage kidney disease requiring dialysis or neuropathy leading to like uh, limb amputations because it's so expensive even if let's say while microwaving our entire population would just raise the the blood glucose levels by a small percentage that could be a significant impact on on population health and and economics well you know i've got a lot to think about now i yeah. did not realize i did not realize the the very strong connection between mold sensitivity or mold exposure and no and this. I didn't right. either. Yeah. Okay. One thing I, I would like yeah. to add to this uh, chronic disease, especially with the diabetes and microwaves, because this is such a sensitive subject and people get very upset when they hear this and they say, uh, no, well, they just, I think people just have a, have a hard time accepting that and they think that it's a crazy idea. So what I would like to say is that no one should take my word for this and all of the references are very um, easily accessible in, I I sent you that link Mm -hmm. to a 2019 medical conference talk where I presented on the cardiovascular and neurologic effects of EMFs. And so I have a section on diabetes in that talk and also a section on oxidative stress. So anyone who thinks that this is crazy and impossible and completely not evidence-based don't take my word for it. It's all in that lecture. And um, there's a summary also that you can just skip to the, you can just skip to that diabetes part, for instance, or another part. So I, I did want to add that. That's great. Because it does, it seems crazy to most doctors. It seems like a crazy notion that the cell phone could have anything to do with blood sure. sugar, Sure, but it's not. Well, especially, especially since they've been told that by the FDA. Right. That's not helping the medical community for the FDA to say there's no problem with exposure to RF radiation. When, right. When when the science clearly do, it doesn't support that statement. I mean, we it's very hard to prove that exposure causes disease, as you said, but but it certainly is not is not helping. Right. And we know that removing exposure can help eradicate disease in certain patients or improve symptoms. That that we know. Yeah. One of those obvious things that, you know, if we are concerned with climate change, then I think that we really do need to think about potential consequences of, of microwaving the entire atmosphere with satellites and with all of the, the cell antenna and, and things like that. And all those terrestrial receivers, right? Yeah, we have, we have all no over idea. The place. We have no idea what might happen. And, and well, I mean, we know that microwaves cause, cause temperature increases. 
Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they do. <laughs> so, yeah, and right. yes, and if it's low intensity, then, but what happens if you, if you add all of the microwave radiation up around the whole planet, could that potentially be doing something? I'm not a physicist. I don't have the answer, but, but common sense seems to indicate that we need to look at this if we, if we care about, about climate change. You've been listening to Green Street, Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been Dr. Sharon Goldberg, an integrative and functional medicine physician who specializes in helping to identify reversible causes of disease. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always listen again on our website, greenstreetradio.com, where you can also sign up for program alerts and give us feedback on the show, greenstreetradio.com. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe and be well. We'll see you next time.